Are you still trying to reinvent the wheel? Tens of thousands of professionals have attempted to solve the same challenges you're dealing with right now. Some of them failed, some of them succeeded. But very few of them succeeded and captured their proven approach to share it with the world. Mike Kunkel is one of these very few. He has been an enabler for over 30 years and has captured his proven approach in an extremely successful framework called the Building Blocks of Sales Enablement. Mike and I have now translated the Building Blocks of Sales Enablement framework into a learning experience that helps a new generation of enablement teams fast-track their journey to sales enablement mastery. Our combination of group coaching sessions, actionable video lessons, materials, resources, networking opportunities and templates makes mastering sales enablement best practices faster and easier than it has ever been before. So if you want to stop reinventing the wheel, maximize business impact and fast-track your career, consider joining a growing community of enablers at the Building Blocks of Sales Enablement Learning Experience. To learn more, visit goffwd.com slash blocks. That's g-o-f-f-w-d.com slash b-l-o-c-k-s. American business culture brings a lot of energy and immediacy to explaining problems and contacts and solutions. And there's a very enabling kind of culture that goes on with American business. And I think even though that intersection in Europe and in Australia sometimes happens, the other side of it is, is actually very positive as well. And in Europe, for example, I see a lot more younger French businesses adopting a so-called American approach to actually marketing and business, which they didn't do previously at all. Welcome to the State of Sales Enablement Podcast with your host, Felix Kruger. Insights and actionable advice from B2B marketing and sales experts that share what it takes to achieve sales enablement excellence. My guest in today's episode has been front and center during EdTech and MarTech's biggest waves of the last decade. During that time, he has helped tech businesses grow into new markets across Asia Pacific and Europe often from a standing start and with minimal resources, an experience he describes as equally fascinating and painful. My guest in today's episode is the commercial director of AI and big data technology platform Octopeak, Ian Kurt. Ian, thank you so much for joining today. Awesome to have you on the show. My pleasure. It's great to be here and to be speaking with you as well. And good morning, I should say, from over here. That's right. Bonjour. So, Bonjour, <laughs> for those of our listeners who don't know you, what's your background and what do you do now? Yeah, I'll try to keep that brief because it's been a while, but I'm originally a media guy. Currently, I'm the commercial lead Europe for a company in France called Octopeak SAS. So Octopeak is a 10-year-old consulting business in big data infrastructure and machine learning applications. And there are three services, essentially. One is a traditional consulting business, a large enterprise. The other is cloud services, so things like cloud migration from data warehouse to modern data hubs. And then the third one is the one that's keeping me up a lot at the moment, which is we're launching an enterprise data science platform called the Octopeak Integration Tool and yeah. doing that across several markets in Europe. Yeah, awesome. But you also previously operated in Australia. What was kind of your remit there? Yeah, that's right. So originally I worked in media in Australia for a long time, but around about 2009, I kind of crossed over into the space that we now know as ad tech and martech in some of its earlier incarnations. So I worked for quite a few American businesses, but most recently I worked for two years in Australia and then a third year in Europe for one of the pioneers of data management platforms, Lodemy, 
So there I was commercial director in Australia and New Zealand. And that was during the period where DMPs were maturing in conversation in the market. So it was really early stage of DMP development. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, I remember that time when we first met and we bonded over a obscure European football club that probably nobody knows called Hertha yeah, yeah. BSC Berlin's. Uh, Hertha, Hertha BSC, yeah. That's right. But that's a story for another day. What I'm always interested in is for commercial leaders operating in the Australian market, especially if they're working for companies that are based overseas. How did you leverage the headquarter resources and especially the marketing support in the way you handled your sales and business development efforts in the Australian market? It's a great question. And it's always a challenge when you're beginning with a business from scratch in the market and that business comes from the outside. So in the beginning, you quite often, you have the constraint of very minimal resources. But with Lodemy, for example, we're very lucky to have quite a good, strong collaborative team across the US base. So we were always able to access those guys. We also reported in the Sydney office to an office in Singapore. But they obviously had the same challenge as well. So we worked really closely with the guys, but it was really challenging in the beginning to have, for example, use cases because DMP technology was quite new to market as well. So we had to kind of boil down the history and the pedigree of Lodemy and then explain that application to the Australian market. So a lot of the material was based on trying to get publishers and brands to see the value of working with Lodemy DMP. But to do that, Really, the one word which I say again and again for growing businesses of limited resources is collaboration. It's absolutely necessary to have really good collaborative processes with the other parts of the company. Mm, absolutely. So it sounds like you had to do a whole lot of education in markets at that stage. Absolutely. Yeah. There was a lot of confusion about DMP. And when the acronym itself became really popular, a lot of platforms started calling themselves DMPs that weren't actually really DMPs. And why? Right. Because any ad tech platform collected data. So you could say we're a data management platform as well. So for the client, this ended up being very confusing. But in reality, there was really only a small handful of strong players that were operating in the space. Mm. So then you had the next layer of differentiation, which was difficult to work with in communicating with the client. And that's what separates at that time a crux from a low to me from Adobe's DMP and so forth. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. How did you go about customizing overseas sales collateral for the Australian market? So I imagine, correct me if I'm wrong, it probably went the way it would normally go. You have a long overview slide deck, let's say from the American market. Sometimes too long. <laughs> That's right. And then you're given that as a basis and then you make that fit the local requirements and the local knowledge levels. How did you go about customizing that? That's not so easy when there's no prehistory for that kind of technology in the market. But always, mm. I think in the Australian market, one of the things that serves you well is to try and get to the practicalities of the situation quickly. So boiling down some of the over-the-top marketing language down to this is what the tool is useful for in your environment. I would point to another example as well. 2009 to 2011, I was selling kind of one of the early standards of video ad serving and the vast video standard in Australia as well. And in the beginning, in the Australian market, a lot of major digital advertisers were still really just using click and impression data for the digital campaigns. And we were selling this new standard, which was about interaction metrics and bringing in a whole range of new metrics to the campaign. So it was about trying to broaden their scope and showing how that could actually be beneficial to them. And of course, a couple of years further down the track, when video really started to explode 2013, 14, these things were actually just standard metrics anyway. But in the beginning, 
it's really trying to boil down the some of the over-the-top, this is the future language in the decks mm-hmm. and saying this is the application of it in your environment. I once had an American visitor come over and present to an ad agency in Sydney and it was kind of quite theatric in the presentation and I saw straight away that the reaction in the Australian market is we're a little bit more down to earth there and a bit more dry in the approach sometimes and I think yeah. looking to get to the essential information a bit quicker. Something to be aware of in Australia as well. Yeah, exactly. Kind of matches the experience that I had, especially American senior executives present in the Australian market. And that's not a good or a bad thing on the mm. side of the executives. I think it's just a cultural nuance that you need to consider, especially if you think about parts of the market that require education and not just need a product being sold to. You really need to, uh, as you said, keep that rational and educational on the point. That's absolutely right. But I think it works both ways as well. So on the other side, American business culture brings a lot of energy and immediacy to explaining problems and contexts and solutions. And there's a very enabling kind of culture that goes on with American business. And I think even though that intersection in Europe and in Australia sometimes happens, the other side of it is, is actually very positive as well. And in Europe, for example, I see a lot more younger French businesses adopting a so-called American approach to actually marketing and business, which they didn't do previously at all. It was even considered a no-no. Let's talk about the differences between countries. I always find it quite fascinating. So in case anybody listening to this podcast couldn't tell so far, I'm originally from Germany. I've been living in Australia for the last 13 years, so I'm quite Mm -hmm. sensitive to those nuances. But you have an even broader insight, having operated in Europe for a very long time and having been able to gain a first person insight into those nuances. How would you describe the differences between markets? So let's say Australia, France, Germany and Great Britain. Yeah, it's a great question. And this topic is absolutely close to my heart. So I'm basically an Australian raised. I wasn't born in Australia. I was actually born in Berlin as well, but I grew up in Australia. So a lot of my formation was there. And Australia is, in a lot of ways, a very advanced market. So we know, for example, that digital ad spend outperforms much larger markets in a lot of ways. And even going back a long time ago, it's very advanced in terms of digital infrastructure, user adoption of mobile even though in the early days, some of the technology wasn't quite keeping pace with the user. So it was advanced. And it's also a pragmatic culture as well, the whole Australian ethos of giving it a go. So these are the things that make Australia interesting and exciting to outside businesses. Now, the flip side of that is it's also a challenge for businesses coming from the outside in Australia, because a couple of things really delineate the Australian market. So there is a limit to it. If you're dealing in MarTech and AdTech, for example, volume can only go to a certain level. And a lot of these platforms rely on volume to make money. And even though that spend is very large in Australia, it's concentrated in a limited group of hands, a limited group of buyers, a limited group of brands as well. And then next to that, the cost of doing business in Australia is relatively quite high. So what you have is Australia is very attractive for all the reasons that we mentioned, but the challenge of being successful in Australia are all those follow-up reasons that I say as well. So this is what makes it challenging. So this is the Australian market. In Europe, you've got actually a lot of variants. So this is the first thing. You've got a diversity of opportunity, which is fantastic. So for me, one of my great pleasures is being able to be in the heart of Europe and to be able to move around Germany to the Nordics and do business in Paris as well. Something I always wanted to do and it's something I do every day, less so in the last year and a half, of course, because of COVID. But that creates a diversity of opportunity. But then you've got all of these markets within markets in Europe, and this creates the challenge. So to give you an example, Germany is a great example. So Germany is this market that outside businesses like Australia 
like Japan, like the United Kingdom, they see it and they say, wow, it's huge. It's amazing. We're just going to go and sit at the edge, set up shop. And even if we take a little bit of the flow of money that's going there, we're going to be doing well. So this is an assumption that always brings up the first challenge in doing business in Germany. Germany is actually quite a complex market. You have a lot of advanced people creating their own tech as well. And it's a conservative business culture. So fast growth startups that are looking to sit on the edge and just suddenly grow like that, just because their products arrive, are usually in for disappointment in Germany. So you have to show stability and constants in Germany to be successful. And also understand how to navigate the fact that Germany is actually a couple of markets in one country. So you have Berlin, you have Hamburg, Dusseldorf, Munich, and these are all centers that have different strengths, different core focuses and different decision makers sitting in them as well. So there's a complexity in Germany that makes it tough. If we look at France, for example, France is a market where Paris has always been the center of business. This is changing a little bit over the last couple of years. You have centers like Bordeaux and Toulouse, which are kind of developing centers of startup growth. But really, decision-making has often taken place in Paris, and it's often considered from the outside to be quite a closed business culture to outsiders. So again, you have to take time to develop those relationships with key people to be successful in Paris as well. And then I look to markets like the Nordics, for example, where the advantages of doing business there are, again, like Australia, it's incredibly digitally advanced. The level of English spoken up there is fantastic. So this means for international businesses, this is a real plus in doing business with the Nordics as well. So the diversity is also a complexity in Europe. And this is what makes it both a very strong and positive place to do business, but also a challenge as well. That insight is amazing, especially if you work in sales or in a commercial leadership role in Australia. I think a lot of people underestimate how easy it is just to operate in the Australian market compared yeah. to being in Europe in such a fragmented environment. Yeah. And on top of that, having to deal with Germany, as you said, <laughs> with the conservative business culture. It's always a headache. I'm not going to name the companies, but some very, very large American companies struggled yeah. early on. And if you take it, a company like this one that I'm thinking of, struggling to have market penetration, you start to see the challenge for much smaller startups trying to yeah. get a foothold in that market. Well, it's a but blessing and a curse for the German markets. That was one of the reasons Germany did so well during the GFC, because they operate in such a conservative way, not only in terms of their investments, but also in terms of the way they manage their money. But yeah, as you said, it's tricky if you're, if you're trying to break in as a technology provider. That's right, because the way that technology is often looked at in Germany, that conservative approach to signing off on one or two years of a SaaS contract is really looked at a line item as a budget for someone to sign off. So they have to feel really comfortable. A, not only is it's not just that the technology is good, it's also are you going to be around in two or three years? You know, are you going to be acquired? Are you going to divert into another thing? If I sign off on this, I'm going to be around in three years. So if me supporting this, is your business going to be there as well? So these kind of questions influence too. And then, of course, Germany produces a lot of its own tech. There's a lot of capable people in that country building its own tech. So they're often weighing it off against what they're actually doing themselves internally. But I love working in Germany and that market as well. It's yeah. a great place to do business. And the way do you interact with those markets in Europe, what would be the, as a salesperson, what would be your best case scenario of receiving marketing support? What sort of areas would you see marketing supporting and what would be your perfect case scenario of marketing supporting you? I always just think of the word collaboration. So I've worked in businesses that are maybe between five and 10 years old and looking to take in quite a gigantic leap either to larger funding or to an acquisition sometimes and spreading out globally. So 
in that environment where resources are often constrained, collaboration is the most important thing between different functions. So that means that marketing has to work very closely with sales. Recently, I read the history of Snowflake written by the current CEO, Frank Slootman, and it was really interesting that in the early days in Snowflake, there was a real mandate that the sales guys coming back from the field, their emails, feedback from the client was shared with the whole business. And everyone in the business was obliged to really follow that feedback, look into what the client was saying as well. I think a danger sometimes when you have separation in functions of marketing and sales that translates to separation with the market and separation from the client as well, because marketing will sometimes determine a strategy in isolation, hand it down to the sales guys and say, right, well, we've done this bit, you go and do the rest, go and make some money. But in actual fact, it's a living, breathing topic that has to evolve in sync, both with the sales guys coming back and saying, well, maybe this is not what we thought, we need to tweak this. And also the sales guys have to listen to the marketing professionals too, because we're guys driven by the fact that we've got urgent numbers to make. So our focus towards marketing can be very narrow sometimes. This is a look, just get me leads. I don't care how you do it. But in actual fact, sometimes evolutions in account-based marketing and doing marketing in a more sophisticated way actually take a little bit of time and some more subtle approaches, whereas the sale guy is just going, give me more leads, give me more leads. So I keep returning to this work collaboration and working together and understanding what collectively you're doing together for the client and for the business that you both work in. Absolutely. I think when it comes to actually gathering intelligence from markets, sales are such a crucial channel for marketing to understand the market better anyway, even in a less complex market environment than in Europe. But I can only imagine how important it is, especially if you have to, as a marketer in a small to medium sized technology business, and you have to formalize a marketing strategy and a sales enablement strategy that speaks to all the kinds of different markets that you're tackling. It's even more so important to actually gain the right insight and the right intelligence to be able to make it really effective. I couldn't agree more. And then you have the complicating factor of language in Europe as well. So international businesses will try to use English as much as possible, but certain markets like France, it's still very important to speak in the local language as well. And there is both the language of the market So French people speaking French, but there's also the language of the industry. And then rendering both of those in a universal language is a really significant challenge for marketers. It's not easy. That's done in equal measures well, and I've seen it done quite badly as well. Yeah. So what do you think the Australian tech sales community can learn from European markets and vice versa? I often see more the case that they can both learn from each other's because it's difficult just on the face of it to make a simple comparison. But I think being scalable around diverse communities is a good lesson for the Australian market. So being agile around the ability to speak different languages in the literal sense, but also different languages in terms of communities and industries and so forth, and being able to move messaging based on that. But what I often remember from Australian business culture, and which I really love and which I see works really positively, and I think it's mirrored a bit more in the United Kingdom, is the concept of really giving it a go, an initiative that exists in Australia. And this is something that some European businesses can really learn from Australia's productivity in that sense. So in Australian businesses, you find a lot of capable people that will say, okay, this problem is a bit of a stretch for me to solve, but I'm going to throw myself into it. I'm going to get the information that I need from other people and I'm going to go ahead and try and move the dial forward. That kind of innovation, I think, is something that Europe can really, not to say that it doesn't exist here, but it's really strongly embedded in the Australian culture. And I think it's something that Europe can learn for. 
one thing that I'm always interested in is you've been operating in the space for quite a while. So that's why I'm interested to hear your opinion on it. In terms of the way you engage and translate technical concepts to senior decision makers who might not have an immediate appreciation for the kind of technology that you offer. How do you manage that translation? Again, like <laughs> keyword translation. How do you manage that translation of highly technical concepts for those senior decision makers that might not be technical enough to have a full appreciation of your platform? It's a great question and one that we wrestle with right now with the launch of a kind of deep tech data science platform. And I think the core thing is understanding, first of all, what problems you're solving for a business, how you're adding value to the business. And then you've got to separate the messaging that goes to the infrastructure and the operation of this business. And I'm speaking with more deep tech products now. And then again, the practical business outcome of using that technology inside of enterprise. They're two different messaging. So an executive that's really concerned about churn in the business or concerned about how supply chain is working in terms of stock in the time of COVID. I mean, he's concerned about that outcome. He's not necessarily concerned how you put APIs together to be able to move data from one corner to another. So first of all, is understanding the ultimate business value of your technology to that business. Taking a step back and then separating is technical value to the operators and to the infrastructure of that business. And that's a real problem where you have to get into the weeds of the platform. And then the second one is, what problems can we solve for the business? Because at the end of the day, that's what we're all here for. And then focusing on those topics for the executives and the business leaders. And that's really understanding the goal for the business, then separating it into its elements and using that language for those people in their element as well. Mm. Would you say that generally those senior decision makers would be involved in the conversations or would that be more indirect touch points with those people? It's both. I think when you're selling deep tech and data science tools, there's a lot of interest in how data is managed at the moment. So the last mm. five years, there's been a, a huge and rapid development in how data is managed. And you've seen the rise of platforms like Snowflake. Cloud mm. is really taking a leap into super important in terms of kind of data management strategy. So executives are necessarily watching those conversations, how they're making purchases and spends, and also the strategic understanding of data in their business. So they're very close to it, but the weeds and how that platform is put together is a different conversation. Mm. I would say you're touching on both of those conversations in any complex sale over a period of six to 12 months. They're both very important and both of them have to understand the value of the platform inside your place. So again, to take it back to B2B marketing, this is really about constructing really effective, clear and concise messaging for each of those component parts, which starts with the value to the business, the value to the technical guys that are using it, the people that are concerned with data governance, data privacy, and then how are we going to get more customers, <laughs> stop customers from leaving, manage our supply, these kind of business-related problems which are important to the executive. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly mirroring what we're experiencing here in complex tech sales. Those kind of senior executives, they might not always be part of the conversation, but they are always in some shape or form informed about the conversation. And you need to yeah. make sure that you engage them throughout for them to understand the value. Because if they don't and the timing isn't right, then you won't get the buy-in from them. It's important. And also, yeah. one of the unspoken things about selling tech to that kind of buyer is they're learning too about new wave platforms. So yeah. they appreciate if you take the time to explain to them because they might even in their own business be getting like overly technical explanations about tools as well. So I think it's important to understand that they have very senior, very responsible strategic roles in the business. 
but they might also be learning about how new data and new technology works. So they appreciate sometimes the time that you take to help them understand some of that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Another translating job for you there. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you start to see where I've been spending most of the last 10 years. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Translation and collaboration. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So you're a commercial leader. You have operated in different markets and in different sizes of organizations. What would be your number one advice for marketing teams who want to better support their sales team in B2B enterprise tech? What can they do to really make your life easier? Connect and collaborate all the time. I think this is super important not to hand off a strategy, check in on an irregular basis how it's working and assume that one size fits all. It's not always easy to go in and re-question what you've put into place in the market, but you have to do it because the market's moving and turning all the time. And the people that are in touch with their customers, the people that understand how they're thinking, are ultimately the people that are going to win. So that means really speaking to sales sites, sales guys that are being out there and saying, you know, what's changed? What's different? That problem that he said in the first meeting three months ago, have we done something about that? Have we not solved the problem, but have we attempted to move in his direction a little bit? Because now we're offsetting a problem that might be larger in nine months. So that kind of constant communication collaboration, checking with the client and checking in with the guys that are actually talking to the client. This is really important stuff. Sometimes it sounds fundamental, but again, it's not always put into action. Ian, awesome. Thank you so much for sharing your insight. It was great to catch up and hear what's going on on your side of the world, yeah. literally and figuratively. If our listeners want to connect with you, where can they find you online? Yeah, probably for work, data, technology-related conversations. I think LinkedIn, you can always find me, Ian Kurd, Octopeak. Always open to talking to people from any country, people that are growing in the business, always open to speaking to people. Networks are important. Awesome. Thank you so much. My Ian. pleasure. You've been listening to the State of Sales Enablement podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe in your favorite podcast player. If you want to learn more about sales enablement, you'll find a growing number of articles, videos, and templates specifically for enterprise technology businesses at kruegermarketing.com learn. That's K-R-U-E-G-E-R marketing.com learn. Considering the recent budget cuts in the enablement space, it is no surprise that in a recent LinkedIn poll, 56% of enablers stated that they plan to increase their ability to create business impact in 2023. I've teamed up with sales enablement legend Mike Kunkel to create a webinar that outlines proven approaches to maximizing enablement's business impact. To watch the seven steps to maximizing enablement's business impact, visit goffwd.com slash impact. That's goffwd.com slash I-M-P-A-C-T.